Gospel is the good news that by faith alone our sin is imputed to Christ, and that by grace alone His act of obedience is imputed to us. That's how we have begun each of the messages in this series through the book of Galatians. Ten sermons in total, the first four about faith, the last six about the Holy Spirit. And today, what we want to do is go back and reinforce something that's of particular importance as we go through this book, and that is the very simple fact that the act of obedience of Christ fully and completely and forever fulfills the law, and that that fulfillment of the law is the only appeal that believers will have on the last day. It is the only righteousness that will be demanded of them, and it is the only righteousness that will qualify them to spend eternity with the holy God. And for this morning, as we shift the focus from purely looking at faith as it relates to the Christian life and more towards the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we need to be reminded Sorry, there's a really weird echo going on, guys. I don't know if anyone else can hear that. But I'll just keep talking. Or should I? What would you prefer? Oh, that sounds a little bit better. Is that good now? All right. Everyone looks at the sound guys like it's their fault. Like they're up there saying, let's play with the weird echo noise and see if he notices. All right, I'll just keep talking. I'll assume we'll get that figured out. Let me back up and say that again in case you were distracted. It is the fact of the gospel that a genuine believer ought to harbor no fear of judgment or of the eternal consequences of sin if they properly understand the righteousness of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the holy life of Christ as it relates to the law. And the question is, how is that possible? And the answer, as we've been looking at over the last several weeks, is that the passive obedience of Christ, seen in full measure at the cross, meaning He took upon Himself the full cost of every sin, of every person who was chosen before the foundation of the world, and in addition to that, the active obedience where He fulfilled the law is given to us as our holiness. So all the price has been paid, all the holiness has been granted to us, and that is given by faith. And this is something that the believers in and around Galatia were struggling with. These house churches that Paul is writing to, and remember, this was Paul's pattern. There's a similarity between what happened here in Philippi and Colossae and Ephesus. Uh, some of those letters don't really say to those one places. For example, the book of Ephesians doesn't say to the Ephesians in the original. It's to all of the churches in and around Ephesus. He, he would write to multiple churches at one time, but, but clearly here there was this problem going on within the church. 
and, and there was a distraction away from the gospel that he had preached so clearly and so passionately, and there had been this notion among the believers there that perhaps the Jews had something to offer them over and above the gospel Paul had preached. They were going to offer something better. They were going to give an enhancement. They could upgrade what Paul had taught them. And so what Paul wants to say in this section of chapter 3, where he kind of pivots from verses 1 to 14, is this. Here's the big argument. All true believers are equally justified. All true believers are equally justified. And this is very important because he breaks it down into two promises, two revelations, two things that he is showing us from God himself that was not fully understood before, and that is, number one, both Jews and Gentiles are children of the covenant, and number two, both are recipients of the blessing. Both are children of the covenant, both are recipients of the blessing. First of all, uh, both of them are children of the covenant. Let's just walk through the first seven verses here. That's what this section will teach us. Look at verse one. He begins by saying, O foolish Galatians, and I'm just going to stop there for a moment to say that Paul, while he is deeply saddened by what's going on here, I don't think he's angry at them. His anger is directed towards the false teachers. But, but Paul's a pastor. He understands that it's difficult sometimes for people to hold on to what's taught. And so he's really, I think, in deep sadness calling out the Galatians. Uh, we said it's similar to what happens when your, your child maybe innocently gets into trouble. They, they find something uh, that they shouldn't be playing with, and they cover themselves in some sort of mess, and they show up at your front door, and, and your thought is, what have you done? Your, your, your thought is, look at you. Um, you know, Catherine and I were talking about this this week and just sharing some funny stories about what happened in our own household. And you look at the child, and you're not angry at the child, but you're just astonished at their ability to get into this mess. And in some ways, this is what Paul, I think, is feeling. And he addresses them particularly as Galatians. He doesn't say brothers or even beloved. He's addressing this region. They've got a regional problem here, you Galatians. And I find that interesting. What if Paul had written a letter to the churches in San Diego? What would he have said to us? Have you ever wondered that? Would, would, would a chapter in that letter begin, oh foolish Diegans? I mean, what have we gotten into? What, what have we adopted? Look around. I mean, people claim the name of Christ all over this county, and they've got wildly different perspectives on the church and on evangelism and on the gospel, would there be anything that he would look at our church at and he would say, oh, foolish San Diegans. Let's be humble enough to acknowledge that we're not perfect and that we too are susceptible to all sorts of things that could happen. There were Judaizers in Rome and Corinth and Philippi. There may be Judaizers of a sort in this room today. Now, I understand you're not going to come along and tell us that if we want to be real Christians, we should adopt a kosher diet. No one's going to try that. But you might try something else. You might say, well, now that you're a Christian, here are the things you've got to give up and stop doing. Here are the cultural things that you need to start doing in order to fit in well around here. In some respects, it's no different than the Judaizers. They come along and they want to add something to 
the gospel. And this is serious. Paul says, who has bewitched you? It's a word that meant to have demonic influence, like supernatural demonic influence. It was a word that was used to talk about casting a spell over somebody. What a powerful statement. Is it possible that they were vulnerable to this kind of thing, these Galatian believers? Well, evidently so. Well, is this something that, that you grow out of as you become more and more mature in Christ? I would like to think so, but think of two examples here in this very book that have revealed it's maybe not the case. Just last week, we saw that Paul had to call out to his face none other than the Apostle Peter. And the Apostle Peter, when he had gotten swept up in this hypocrisy, was even able to drag along faithful Barnabas. So, with all due respect, if Peter and Barnabas can become susceptible to the influences of those who would like to undermine the gospel, then can we be humble enough this morning to acknowledge that it could quite possibly happen to us as well? That we are probably not so mature uh, that we would stand firm in a place where Peter and Barnabas would fall? Can we go back with all humility and ask the Lord for continued uh, protection and help in these areas? I mean, you don't be arrogant. Uh, this is something that has happened in the church for hundreds of years, and if there is one thing that we can say about it for which we should actually be thankful, it's this. When these false teachings come into the church throughout history, the church has responded by clarifying their doctrine. When false teaching comes in, the church has responded by clarifying their doctrine. That's why we had the early creeds. That's why we have the confessions. Uh, that's why the confession we use here, the London Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689, formulated responses to a lot of the false teaching that had proliferated up until that point. After the Reformation, they were there to sort of make sure that everybody in that new Protestant church understood the large boundary markers of what was orthodox. Well, this letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians was doing the same thing. He was silencing what was wrong, and he was giving amplification to what is true. He says to them very clearly that it was before your eyes. Literally, it was written before you, depicted graphically. It was as if somebody took a whiteboard and, and they drew for you everything that they were saying in, in graphic detail. He says what was shown before you, written before you, was that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. It's very interesting to see the way that he zeroes back in on this. Remember, Paul's ministry had always been this way. He said to the Corinthian believers, for example, as you all know this verse, I was determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Have you heard that before? That's the essence of the gospel message. That's why in some ways, when you come to a healthy church, you hear the same sermon every week. I know some of you are thinking, yeah, I've noticed that. Hear the same things repeated over and over and over again. Why? Well, because we're prone to forget, and also because we need it every week. I don't know about you, but I need to hear the gospel preached to my own soul every week, because between now and next Sunday, there's going to be so many of those valleys where I begin to look to myself instead of Christ. I need somebody to grab me by the collar and force me to look into the very face graphically depicted of Christ and Him crucified, securing for me the full penalty paid and righteousness imputed. I need that, and so do you. 
In fact, one of the things that we've been learning in our church here in the last few years is just the importance of the assurance of salvation and that it's not tethered to how well you're doing. And if you tie your assurance to how well you're doing, it's going to go up and down like you go up and down. But if instead you tie your assurance to the work of Christ, then you never have to worry. In fact, I was describing this to somebody earlier this week. I can't remember who it was, but I, I said one of the things that I, I believe we're learning how to do here is not to fight for assurance, but to fight with assurance. Assurance is a weapon. Assurance is something that we fight against that corpse of the law that stands up and tries to accuse us. This sort of zombie regulation that never seems to die, always seems to be lingering in the dark corners of our lives, confronting us and challenging us and accusing us. What you fight with is the assurance of the knowledge of the truth of the gospel. And so this is what Paul wants these Galatian believers to do. So he says this in verse 2, let me ask you only this. Literally, it's this. This only I wish to learn. It's the same word for learner or disciple. This only I wish to learn. Now, he's not saying there's only one question because he actually asks four questions. <laughs> have you ever met somebody like that? They say something to you like this. They go, I just have a question. And then 17 questions later, they're still going, right? Paul, Paul's kind of doing it. He says, I got this one thing but this one thing has many parts, and if you're taking notes the way that I break this down in my own mind anyway, is the four parts are this. He wants to learn about their faith, their flesh, their fruit, and the finished work of Christ. How do you like that alliterated all Fs? The faith, the flesh, the fruit, and the finished work of Christ. The first one, the faith. He asked the question, did you receive... It's the word lambano in, in, in Greek, and this is an important distinction. It means to grasp on to something. Did you receive this aggressively, actively take hold of it? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Please notice how personal this is. It's their personal faith. He says, this is you. What did you do? What was your life like? Did you receive the gospel, the Spirit of God, by faith or by works? Did you understand and believe the gospel, and then because you did something, the Spirit of God came upon you in power? That's his question. Now, obviously, the answer is, well, no. It was by faith that I received. It was by faith the Spirit filled me. It was by faith I was indwelt. Now, let me give you an illustration. It's a story from the Old Testament. So I want to tell you a story, and uh, some of you just got shudders because you're like, no, I just left a church where the pastor just tells stories. Don't worry, it's not that kind of story. It's a Bible story, and it's a really good one, and I know we got our kids with us here today, so I want to bring them in on this amazing story. So if you want to jot this down and look at it later on, it's coming from 2 Kings chapter 5, and it's one of my favorite stories in all of the Old Testament. So listen carefully to this because it illustrates what Paul is saying. Once upon a time, there was a man named Naaman, and Naaman was the leader of the Syrian army. So Naaman was a commander. He was a military guy. Uh, he was responsible for the Syrian army. And one of the things that the Syrians did is they would swoop in to the land of Israel, and they would slaughter the Israelites, and they would take their people captive. And one of the people that he took captive and kidnapped was a little girl, a little Jewish girl. And this little Jewish girl, we don't know her name, 
uh, ended up working in Naaman's house. He became a servant to Naaman's wife. And one day, uh, it became clear that Naaman was uh, suffering from a terrible disease. He had leprosy, which was, if not a death sentence back then, it was definitely something that resulted in you being completely cut out from your culture and your society. And what's very interesting to me is that um, really out of mercy, this little girl says that she knows that there is a prophet in Israel who would be able to heal him. And he goes to find this prophet. And he goes, the text says, taking with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he went to the king of Israel, and he said, I want to know how to be healed. And the king of Israel at that time was terrified because Naaman said, I heard from one of your people that you know how to cure leprosy. And the king, in his terror, says, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. He is saying, look, I can't do that. I have no power. But somebody stepped up who did, and his name was Elisha. Remember Elisha, the prophet? He's different than Elijah. He was before him. Elisha came after. And Elisha meets with Naaman and gives Naaman this instruction. He says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. But Naaman was insulted by that. Naaman said, I came out here to talk to a prophet who was going to wave his magic wand over my head or something and make me cured of my leprosy. I am not going to walk down to that dirty Jordan River and dip myself seven times. Are you making fun of me? Is this some kind of game? Are you going to stay up there with your servant and laugh at me while you watch me, the commander of the Syrian army, go down and dip in the water seven times? You're lucky I don't chop your head off right now. That was my part I added, but I think that might be what he was thinking. As he walks away angry, his servant says, basically, Naaman, what's the harm in trying? You come all this way, why not try? And Naaman goes down, and he dips himself in the river, just like he was told to do. And he comes out, and he's perfectly clean. That was faith. Naaman showed faith. Dipping himself in the Jordan was not a work. If it was a work that brought salvation, then everybody would need to dip themselves seven times in the Jordan to be saved. Dipping himself in the Jordan was a way of showing faith, that he believed what the prophet said. But here's where the story gets really interesting for me. This is why it's one of my most favorite stories in the Bible. is because he then goes and he starts to talk to the prophet about what he's going to do when he goes back home. And in verse 18, he says, In this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself down in the house of Rimon, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, Yahweh pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Elisha did, go in peace. Elisha did not say, well, I'm sorry, Naaman, now that you're a follower of Yahweh, you have to give up all that other stuff. You have to get all of these things organized in your life. You have to start doing all of these good works. You, you have to cast off all of these pagan traditions of yours. What we see here in this text is that Naaman, who is now a follower of Yahweh, says, I'm going to take some dirt from the ground, and I'm going to throw that, and when I bow down, apparently to worship Rimon, I'm actually worshiping Yahweh. Is that okay? 
You see, my heart wants to worship Yahweh, but, but given the circumstances, it's going to be impossible for me to do that right now. Will the Lord pardon me in this? And Elijah says, go in peace. Is he, is he, is he diminishing the expectations of the gospel? No, he is just saying that in this case, adding any kind of works to your salvation is not going to improve your standing with God. Now let's go back to Galatians. You see, this is what is so fascinating in Paul's argument. Paul is saying to them, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by doing something additional? No. The answer is that faith doesn't need to add law. I gave you the example of Naaman, but you could use the same example of someone like Cornelius who didn't have to get circumcised after he became a follower of Jesus. You could do the same thing about all the people in Nineveh who became followers of Yahweh and didn't have to get circumcised or do anything else. There is never an example where anybody has to add works onto their justification. What is done as a response in obedience to God and in the subsequent elimination of ungodliness and immorality and a pursuit of holiness is a natural outflow, not of works, but of the Spirit. If the Spirit is in you, you will bear fruit. We'll get to that in a moment, but look at verse 3. He says, are you so foolish, this is the next question, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, that you are now being perfected by the flesh? Have you added to the gospel, he says? Did anyone else have to add works? Of course not. In fact, if you go to another beautiful section of Scripture, which I love so much, it's in Hebrew, it's in a Titus chapter 3, and just listen as I, as I read this. We don't have time to flip to all of these. But in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, we read, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's all by Him. So faith doesn't need to add law, and flesh is never forced into holiness. Holiness comes as a natural progression from the Holy Spirit inside of you. And this is exactly the point in the next verse. Look at it, verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Now, what is he talking about? I believe he's looking back, really, to a reference to the parable of the soils. Do you remember that parable? There are four types of soils, and... Um, the sower goes out, and he's sowing the gospel, Jesus says, and some falls on a hard-packed soil, and it gets taken away, and some falls on two other kinds of soil, and there appears to be something happening. There appears to be growth, but in one case, it's just burned up, and in the other case, it's choked out. That's what it means, vain. It seemed like maybe there was something there. Have you seen this before? Somebody maybe at a young age does something that appears to indicate that they want to follow the Lord, they, they believe the gospel, they put their faith in Christ, whatever you want to say, but then clearly there's absolutely nothing to prove that later on in life. Has that person lost their salvation? The answer is no, it's impossible. The reality is that that person has never truly been converted. And so what you have is the last example where that person hears the gospel, receives it, takes it in deeply, and as a result there is growth, but more than just growth there is also fruit. And fruit is the issue here. And so he says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Meaning, I don't think it is, because fruit is the necessary evidence of faith. Now, let me clarify something for you. 
You might be saying to yourself, okay, but wait a minute. I've heard you say before that we are saved by faith alone. We keep going over that. And the answer is yes, but the people who articulated that, that doctrine were really helpful for us by saying it this way. You are saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. You're saved by faith alone, but genuine saving faith is never alone. Genuine saving faith will produce fruit. Genuine saving faith means the Holy Spirit has indwelt you and empowered you, and therefore, through His power, manifests the fruits of the Spirit, which are the good works that we as Christians were ordained to do before the foundation of the world. So you have to connect Ephesians 1, 4, that in love God predestined us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight, with Ephesians 2.10, which is that the outworking of that is the good works that He promised He would do through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a wonderful solution to the problem, isn't it? I mean, if you're wondering whether or not a tree is alive, you can't just look at the leaves. You've got to look for the fruit. Is this thing really healthy? Is it really producing? And that's all that He's asking you to do. So you have here the faith, the flesh, the fruit, and the final one is the finished work of Christ. Look at verse 5. He who supplies, he who is the giver, the Spirit gives that Spirit, supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles. So he is the giver and he is the worker. The word miracle there is literally the power. He is the one who is working in you and through you and among you. And the question is, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Does he do it by works of the law? The answer is no, of course not. Or by hearing with faith? Yes. Just as, verse 6, and here's the illustration, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness or justification. I want you to notice something here. It says that Abraham believed God. He didn't just believe in God. He believed God. James told us in his epistle not too long ago that even the demons believe God in God and they shudder. Even the demons understand there's a God, but Abraham believed in God. He believed what he was saying to him. He followed him in faith, and this is what separated him. And as a result, he was counted righteous, looking ahead to the time when Christ would come and pay in full all of the debt, all of the expectation of what had led up to that point, even in the Old Covenant. The finished work of Christ is and always has been our justification. And so he wraps up the section here in verse 7 by saying no, and that's the word for no that means no by experience, no by experience existentially then that it is those of faith, not ethnicity, those of faith, not just Abraham's physical descendants, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's what it means to be a child of the covenant. That's what it means to properly understand Genesis 15, 7 through 17. Wish we had time to go through all that. This amazing account of when God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he says, get some animals and cut them in half and make a pathway. And then he walks through it by himself, having put Abram to sleep so he couldn't even try to enter into that covenant with God. He says, I'm going to make the covenant. I'm going to make it for you and on your behalf 
knowing that you're not going to be able to uphold your half of the bargain. So I'm going to have to send another one of you to this earth so that they can live it perfectly where you failed and then they can die to pay the debt you owe. You see, from the very beginning in Genesis 15, it was looking forward to the gospel, looking forward to making us all sons of Abraham. So, we are children of the covenant. Secondly, from verses 8 through 14, we are recipients of the blessing. Look at verse 8. And the Scripture, which is the Word of God here, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. The Scriptures are said to be foreseeing or prophesying ahead of time that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, just pause for a moment. I need to get your attention on something. This is coming from Genesis 12, 1 to 4. You can jot that down. Genesis 12, 1 to 4. This might be a little confusing at first, so let's, let's make sure we understand it. When God said to Abram or Abraham that all the nations will be blessed in you, he was making a statement. Abraham heard God say that. It was hundreds of years later that Moses wrote it down, 430 years later. Remember, Abraham didn't write Genesis. We're all clear on that? Abraham didn't write Genesis. Abraham went to his grave with no Bible. Abraham went to his grave having only heard from God, directing him at different times in his life. He showed up one time when he was 75, and another time when he was 86, and another time when he was 100. He went long intervals where God was not speaking to him, and he certainly didn't have a Bible that he was reading. But yet, in the words that Moses wrote down in Genesis, you can see that God, through His spoken Scripture, was prophesying that in the future, Gentiles would be treated with equal regard as the Jews, that we would all become part of that one covenant people. It's an astonishing statement. It's very complicated, but I think that's the best way to explain it. God's Word, His spoken Word, even preceded the written Scriptures. So then, verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I think it's very important that he's called the man of faith here. He's called the believing man, literally. And I'm glad he called him the believing man and not the obedient man, because Abraham wasn't the most obedient man, was he? Now, there were several times in Abraham's life, in fact, where he was anything but obedient. He had this weird tendency of going into a new town and telling his wife to pretend that she was his sister, and then she gets wrapped up in someone's harem. You would think after the first time, they would have a very serious conversation. But it has happened more than once. There were many times in which Abraham did not act according to obedience. I'm glad he's not called a man of obedience, because none of us are men or women of obedience, but we can be men and women of faith. And it's that faith that God gives as a result of regeneration And I'm so glad because verse 10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Please jot down Deuteronomy 27, 15 to 26. Again, this is a point in time where God, in discussing the consequences and details of His covenant relationship, 
says that if you fail on your end, then you will be cursed. Cursed are you if you, and then he gives a whole bunch of examples all throughout Deuteronomy 27. And here, I'm not going to get into all those details, but he's making the statement. He says that anybody who tries to live according to the law for your justification is going to end up cursed because you are cursed if you fail to do any of them. Please don't be the person who thinks that you are going to obey God's law as a way to earn favor with him. Nobody is righteous. Nobody is able to live up to the standard. In fact, the standards are given, the law is given, so that the gospel can be contrasted. Even in the New Testament, over and over again, Jesus does that in his conversations with people. He will say to them, like the rich young ruler, if you want to go by the law, if law is what you want, law is what you're going to get, good luck with that. The psalmist asks hypothetical questions like, who is worthy to ascend your holy hill? Answer, no one. No one is worthy. Why is the law given with all these curses attached so that everybody understands that they all stand under judgment? They are all cursed. Nobody is able to live up to that. Somebody has to come who inhabits human flesh, is truly God, truly man, lives those things perfectly, and then dies as if he hadn't, lives in that cursed flesh, bearing all the consequences and all of the pain with none of the blame. And only one person did that, and it's Christ, and he was foretold in the old covenant and then made visible in the new. In fact, I don't think this is any place more vividly depicted, at least in the book of Galatians than in verses 11 and 12. And if you have been learning about the law-gospel distinction like so many of us have in recent years and been so refreshed by this perspective on Scripture that it's given us just a renewed zeal for for seeing the way that God lays out the glory of justification through faith alone, then go back to 11 and 12, and you'll see there contained the very kernel of this truth. Look at what it says. Now, it is evident that no one is justified, no one is made legally just before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. This is a quotation from Habakkuk 2.4, also Romans 1.17. The justification of faith, which is the gospel and the good news to all. That's the only way we live, is by faith, not by obedience to the law. But, verse 12, the law is not of faith. You can't have faith and law. It's law or faith. There is here a very simple statement that the law is not of faith. Rather, strongest contrast in the original, the one who does them shall live by them. The one who does the law will continually have to do them if they are to live by them. May I ask you a question this morning? Is that good news or bad news? That's bad news. That is not the gospel. If I tell you, do this and live, If I tell you to be justified in the eyes of God, you must do His law perfectly. You do not want to walk out of here encouraged because I've given you seven tips on how to succeed. This is bad news. This drives you back to the cross. This drives you back to the place where you're asking for mercy, not for justice. 
And so Paul is trying to help the Galatians understand that if you try to go back to the Mosaic law, if you try to impose circumcision and dietary restrictions and festivals and the whole thing on these people, you are going to essentially put them into a situation where they have to do all of that perfectly in order to be justified, and the original Jews weren't able to do that. What makes you think a bunch of Gentiles are going to be able to do that? Whereas both the Jews and the Gentiles were told to look to the one perfect second Adam to find their justification in him. He is the one you're abandoning. Leviticus 18.5 says the justification of the law, talks about the justification of the law, and that it is not the gospel. It's law, and it's not good news for anyone who tries. Well, now he begins his descent. Verse 13 following, Christ redeemed, he rescued us from the curse of the law. Not just the law itself, but the curse that came with the law. How did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says that he became sin for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. You can jot this down and look at it later. In Deuteronomy 21-23, there's a uh, instruction given to the Jewish people. When somebody committed a capital crime and they were brought out into public and they were stoned to death, depending on the nature of the crime, you were to take that dead body and you were to hang it up on a tree, a literal tree, and it would hang there all day, and as the people walked by, they would look at it. It would be a reminder not to do what that person was convicted of doing. However, because you didn't want to desecrate the land, you didn't want to do what some of the pagans were doing in the area, by sundown, you took that body off the tree that had served its purpose, and you buried it. Why was Jesus crucified, dead, and buried before the sun went down? Because he was fulfilling this curse. He was hung on a tree. He died on that tree. And he died not only to bear, but to be the curse and to bear it in full for all of those who before the foundation of the world have been chosen to put their faith in him. And so when you see here that that he became a curse for us, it's a very vivid depiction of what happened on the cross in fulfillment of the old covenant prophecy. That is why when he said, it is finished, he was buried before sunset. So, verse 14, there are two conclusions to hinna clauses, the so that clauses, so we know what the author is driving at. Number one, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham, the covenant blessings promised to the Jews might come to the Gentiles, so we are equally incorporated into their covenant. There's only one people of God. And secondly, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Not only do we receive all of the covenant blessings, but we also receive the promised Holy Spirit. Remember how from time to time the Holy Spirit would come upon someone in the old covenant? Someone like Samson or the 70 elders where they spoke in tongues around Moses. The Spirit would come upon them. The promise was that one day that spirit would come and dwell and stay, and that's exactly what happened when Jesus came, because he died, and he opened up the way then for the ascension that would result in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. 
That is why when Paul would travel around to these different groups, if he encountered somebody who had not yet fully understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, he would then lay hands on them and they would receive the Holy Spirit as proof that the Holy Spirit had come to the Gentiles. Not as proof that you were saved, as if everyone who gets saved has to speak in tongues. It was proof that the Gentiles had been saved and incorporated into the covenant people. So you receive all the blessings of Abraham and the promised spirit, not through your works, but through faith. Beloved, Jews and Gentiles are justified equally. They are both children of the covenant, and they are both recipients of the blessing. Consider this, number one, good works are a necessary consequence of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We've alluded to it before, but Ephesians 2.10 is where I would go to prove that. Far from being antinomian, far from being those who would say, shall we sin that grace may abound, far from accepting that accusation laying down, we stand up and we say, absolutely not. We square up against that opponent and say, no, no, no. We are not saying that it doesn't matter how you live. Far from the truth. As a matter of fact, we believe that your pursuit of holiness is going to be invigorated by the fact that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Nobody who's truly born again is then going to look at sin the same way they did before they were saved. It's a ridiculous accusation. Especially because before the foundation of the world, God ordained that we would have these good works that ultimately bring glory to Him, not to us. Why? Because He is coming back with His good works. Isaiah 40, verse 10. Isaiah 62, verse 11. He is coming back, and with Him is His recompense. Unfortunately, it's translated reward a lot of the time in our English Bibles, and reward makes us think that it's some kind of ribbon that you're going to get at the end. That somehow you're going to get the, uh, you know, the upgrade because your platinum status. In fact, uh, there are some very unfortunate things in print these days that would seem to make Christians want to believe that. I'm reading an excellent book right now called More Than Heaven by T. Jeff Taylor. And in it, he actually cites some of these writers that are rather popular these days in certain circles. I gave one of the quotes this week in The Weekender. But let me give it to you again here, as this one author puts it, if we think of heaven as a theme park, we can stop there and say, what a silly thing to say. But let's just give him the paragraph, right? If we think of heaven as a theme park, we must emphasize that the entrance ticket is free. But if we want to go on some of the rides, if we want to be rewarded and not embarrassed at the sadness we caused Christ, we must be faithful on earth. The entrance is free, but some additional benefits are based on merit. Paul would know nothing of that. It's not the gospel. The only merit that is ever going to be evaluated is the merit that was earned by Christ. And he comes back with it. And a proper translation of Revelation 22, 12 to 13, would echo what it says in Isaiah 40, verse 10, and 62, verse 11. He comes with that reward. That is why the Jews receive that as comfort. He says, comfort my people, comfort them with this truth. And that's why I want to leave you with comfort. I don't want you to fear what the judgment's going to be like. If you're in Christ, there's no fear. There's no fear that you're going to make Jesus sad and he's going to be crying in the corner because of stuff you did. You're not going to have to worry about standing in line but never getting on the ride. You're not going to worry about being, experiencing some kind of sanctified jealousy because some person has like a bigger mansion than you. Remember all the stuff that got taught to some of us when we were kids? Let us, be, let us be 
rescued from that way of thinking, as painful as it might be, and go back over that ground again and really understand what Scripture actually teaches so that we can all say together with great joy, so come, Lord Jesus. Because if anything I have done is going to impact my experience with him when he returns, I'm not going to want him to come. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to be on my deathbed thinking, you know what? The last two years I've done pretty well. I think I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm ready for the judgment. Bring it on. <laughs> Nobody is going to think that way. They're only going to look to Christ. For some of you, this is new information. I know it's a little bit hard to digest. So let me give you this as an encouragement. We're about to sing a song that was written by William Cooper, a man who was burdened with mental illness and depression and a horrible anxiety about his own life. And his good friend and pastor named John Newton found a way to keep him from killing himself, and that was to give him an, uh, an assignment. And every week they would gather together on Friday afternoon and they would exchange the hymns that they had written. And one of the hymns that John Newton wrote was Amazing Grace. You're all familiar with that. And one of the hymns that William Cooper wrote was How Long, Love Constraining to Obedience. Um, Cooper was the better poet. Um, unfortunately, a lot of his songs are not incorporated into our regular liturgy, but this one has been reintroduced by us. And I want you to listen carefully as you sing it, because the verses are structured as a then and now. And I want you to be watching that and thinking about it, because he's instructing us through the song. It's very important. For example, he says in verse 2, Then, looking back on my life before Christ... To abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. I, I couldn't do it. But now, if I feel its power within, if I feel the desire to sin, I feel I hate it too. Hatred of sin is a good indication that you're a child of God. Then, in my old life, all my servile works, all my efforts were done. A righteousness to raise, trying to build up my own righteousness. But now that I'm saved freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. He doesn't say, freely chosen in the Son, I do whatever I want. He says, no, freely chosen in the Son, I choose His ways. I want to obey the law as that guide for my life and out of gratitude. And then he ends by saying, what shall I do was then my word that I may worthier grow. I was always trying to do something, always trying to be more worthy. But now, he says, what shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. How may I just serve you out of, out of joy and gratitude for what you've done for me? And then the chorus goes, how long, how long beneath the law I lay. How long, how long I struggled to obey. How long, how long until I see your face. How long, how long to be like you on that day. You see, it changes everything, doesn't it? May that be the case for each and every one of us. So come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for this book of Galatians and for everything it's been teaching us so far. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that is going to be the subject over the next several weeks. We thank you for the, the indwelling source, not just of joy and assurance, but also of power and holiness. I ask that none of us would take these words and misconstrue them to be an invitation to live lives of sinfulness without regard for what you have asked us to do in your word. I pray that nothing that we have taken from this study would lead us down a faulty path that says, 
your hatred of sin has somehow been diminished under this new covenant. Far from it, may we begin to see that with the power of the Holy Spirit and His illumination, that we'd see the Scriptures more clearly and fully, that we would see the wrath of God, the judgment of Christ, and the hatred of sin, and that we would then fly to the cross in earnest expectation that you will do what you've said you will do, and that anyone who comes to you, you will not cast out. Oh, Lord, I ask that uh, we would be counted among those who are able to receive and to rest, as the great confession says, knowing that you love us. You did this because you loved us and because you invite us to experience the blessed rest that comes from not only laying down our sin, but also laying down all of our self-righteousness. Rescue us from both, I pray, for our eternal good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.